<clears throat> well, the last time I stood before you, Pastor Larry played a dirty trick on me. He slipped Pastor Will a $5 bill to make my microphone not work. So we're off to a good start already this morning. We've got power. <clears throat> it's been an interesting week, and uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you uh, for the many gifts and words of kindness that you have extended to me and my family. Moving is not easy. So uh, there's a reason you don't do it often. There's a reason we're not planning on doing it for a long time. And so uh, thank you. Um, it's impossible to eradicate all of the weird things that happen when you move. I'm still looking for a few personal effects, and I don't know where they are. I'm going to find them. And uh, appreciate you guys bearing with me as we are uh, quickly trying to get settled. So thank you. Uh, as Jordan just saying about the fellowship that we have with Christ, one of the things that's wonderful is even in a new situation where uh, I don't even know all y'all's names, there's a fellowship that goes beyond familiarity. That just when we can share together as brothers and sisters in Christ, that even though we don't know each other's names quite yet, there's still a precious, precious love that we can share. And I thank you. We are truly blessed if uh, this first week that we're in town is a precursor of the love that we're going to have for each other. That's a great thing. God's glorified in that. Well, this morning I want you to imagine yourselves in a situation. And the situation is this. As you look around this church, the people that you love and respect the most in this church start leaving for another congregation. You look next Sunday, there's 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45 people that you have loved and respected that aren't worshiping with us. You happen to view these people as especially intelligent, well-respected churchmen, devoted husbands and wives, respected leaders in society. And it just so happens that a few weeks from now, you happen to cross paths with, with them at uh, Walmart, or I think here in town, Bilo. And you ask them, what in the world is going on? Why haven't I seen you at church? And with all sincerity, they look you straight in the eye and they say, we've, we've found something better. We found an improvement upon Christianity. We found the next step for where the Christian faith needs to go. And these people were formerly your Sunday school teachers, your deacons, your elected committee chair people. How would you feel? Now, I have no doubt that the good people at Northside Baptist Church would remain true to the gospel that you have to believe and you will continue to believe that. But if all of the people in the church that you love and respect for their Christian leadership said, we found something better, would it at least for a second give you pause to say, what is it that you found? What am I missing? How do I really know 
that what I believe is true compared to what they have found. That would be a troubling situation to find yourself in, wouldn't it? See, a vast number of people leave. Well, that's exactly what happened to a bunch of congregations in Asia Minor around the turn of the first century. So-called Christians were being wooed by a perversion of the Christian faith called Gnosticism. We could maybe think of Gnosticism as first century Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, That's not quite accurate, but it'll work for illustration purposes. And so many so-called believers were viewing this new perversion of the Christian message as attractive. And the Apostle John writes in his first letter to comfort and encourage these churches as they pick up the pieces of the carnage that a false belief system has wrought upon their church. Put ourselves into the first century situation, and any congregation that lost respected leaders would be devastated. This church, any church. And so with a power that really only the Holy Spirit can give, the beloved disciple tells these churches that they can have confidence in the gospel that they have believed. And that there is power that comes from the facts of the gospel. So John uh, begins his encouragement by telling these conversations what you see in your outline and what you see on the screen. That we can have confidence because there is reasonable, rational evidence for the gospel. Now as we're getting to know each other here over these next few weeks and you're learning to listen to my voice and getting accustomed to my, my preaching style... Uh, You can rest assured, uh, whether you're a blank filler in or or not, uh, you will have blanks to fill in. Anything that we can do to aid in retention, help you to remember. Uh, Most of us have probably forgotten more sermons than we care to admit. If we can remember God's Word, we're we're on the right path to living it out. And so uh, you'll have a a bulletin, a, a guide in your outline to kind of follow along. And John starts off in this first point by saying we can have confidence because there is reasonable, rational evidence for the gospel. Look at me with the uh, first letter of John, chapter 1, verse 1. The beloved disciple says this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life? And then he trails off. He starts this first verse rather breathlessly. There's a lot of verbs there in that first verse. Uh, What we've heard, what we've seen, what we've looked at, what we've touched. And he is uh, telling us in this opening verse that there is great reason for us to be confident about the gospel. And John, in this verse, even has the audacity to say to a trembling congregation that he can prove that the gospel is true. How can he prove it? Because he was there at the beginning when the word of life was incarnated. And he says, let me tell you about my experience. In spite of what has happened to you with people leaving the church for the next best thing, for the next fad, let me take you back and tell you the old, old story. I told you it before. Let me remind you what it's about so that you can be encouraged. If you read the first letter of 1 John, that first phrase kind kind of sounds familiar if you know anything about John. What was from the beginning? 1 John 1.1. You remember John chapter 1, verse 1, in the prologue to John's gospel, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, Evidence that uh, John didn't get over his gospel. He includes that introduction here in his first letter. 
And so he is uh, going to explain to us why we have, can have confidence. And when we talk about proving the truth of uh, the Christian faith, one of the things that's difficult is people go, well, you know, how are you going to prove this to me? Uh, we need to remember the difference you see in your outline between uh, proving in a courtroom and proving in a science lab. Uh, scientific method requires the manipulation of variables, and you tweak different things. I don't know if we have any chemists here or any folks who work in uh, the science field, but there's the manipulation of variables and processes until you can replicate without fail the same exact result every single time. Here's the problem. With any of these disputed issues that you hear talked about as hot topics, creation versus evolution, you can't replicate that in a science laboratory, can you? Well, for one, God created everything out of what? Nothing. I haven't seen any scientist try to create something out of nothing. They've got to create something out of something. So the scientific method is out. But what John says here, he says, if you will allow me the benefit of not having to prove something by the scientific method in a science lab, I can prove to you in the setting of a courtroom the truth of the gospel. And so John says, let me call forth some witnesses. And let's, let's have, put these witnesses on the stand and let's see if they can help us to have confidence in the gospel. And so he goes through this whole list of important verbs. He says, I, I, I heard from Jesus' own lips what he thought was important. Man, it'd be amazing to hear the things that the apostle John heard. As a matter of fact, uh, in uh, the book of um, Matthew, Jesus says to his followers, how blessed are your ears to hear the things that you have heard. Because many are the prophets and teachers that have longed to hear the things that you get to hear. I don't know about you, uh, but I've often pondered, if I could hear Jesus preach, what, what would I want to hear? Would I want to hear a thundering sermon? Would I want to hear him say uh, in a still, small voice to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more? Amazing things that John heard. And he's reporting to us objective um, reasonable, rational proofs for the gospel. He talks about what he'd seen. And you think about his three years of walking with Jesus, he saw some amazing things. One of the things that's interesting, if you read this passage, verses 1 through 4, you'll see that this verb seen is the only verb that's repeated three times. He says it in verse 1. He says, what we've seen with our eyes. Verse 2, he says, what we have seen, we testify to you. Beginning of verse 3, he says, what we've seen and heard, we proclaim it to you. John's trying to say, this was not a dream that I had. We saw this, and I can tell you the details. This is not some fairy tale. This is not some story. This is not some mythology. This is fact. We can believe this. One of the things that I find fascinating about this is if you turn back to John's gospel, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 9, you see something very similar. In 1 John 1, 1 through 4, John repeats this seen verb, what he has seen three times in these, uh, just these couple of verses. Well, in John chapter 20, he does the exact same thing. And it's very interesting to kind of note how it's used here. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. I'll read the story. <clears throat> now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone was already taken away from the tomb. So what did she do? She ran and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple, who, by the way, is John, 
He just doesn't, he's humble. He doesn't name himself in his own gospel. So Peter and the other disciple, John, went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and John ran ran ahead faster than Peter because he was younger and he came to the tomb first. Verse 5, pay attention closely. And stooping and looking in, he what? He saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. The, the word for saw there is really talking merely about sensory perception. He looked in, he saw the claws, and went, hmm, we've got a problem here. No body. Didn't believe, he just saw. Verse 6, so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there in the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. The word saw used for Simon Peter uh, indicates seeing with understanding. So Peter is going, hmm, Jesus told us he would be raised from the dead. So he didn't just see with his senses. He saw and was beginning to understand, still confused, figuring it out. Verse 8, so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and what? Saw and believed. He saw and believed. John knows that in his own personal pilgrimage, seeing the fact of the resurrection was important to him. And so when he is writing in 1 John to encourage a congregation, he says, do you know what I have seen? I didn't even realize it the first time I saw it. I had to see it three times. I saw it, Peter saw it, and then I saw it and I believed. And he's saying in the same way that I have this confidence that the gospel message is true, it is true for you as well. He makes the point even clearer. He continues in verse 1 by saying what we've seen with our eyes and what we've looked at. Well, what's the difference between seeing and looking? Well, not a whole lot, except for the fact that this word looked at indicates the ability to be able to look at something after it's been taken from your vision. Does that make sense? It's more the idea of um, maybe contemplating, thinking about something when it's not in front of your face. I don't know if any of you travel for a living. I used to do that rather extensively for the seminary. And there would be times when I was on the road a little too long, I was ready to be home, and I could see my wife and my kids. They weren't in front of me. We weren't Skyping. There was no internet connection. There was no iPhone FaceTime. I could see my wife and my kids because they were alive to my memory. And in the same way, John's saying, listen, I didn't just see it physically. I contemplated it. And I had to think long and hard about what this meant. And he's giving his testimony here like a witness in a courtroom. And so John continues to marshal all this evidence, and he says, not only did we hear it, not only did we see it, not only did we contemplate it, we touched it. You remember when Jesus appeared to the disciples, they all thought he was a ghost. And how did he respond? He said, you come on up here and handle me. Put your, put your finger in the holes in, in my hands. Uh, he says, I have flesh and bone. A ghost wouldn't have flesh and bone. And that is the same word here. We have handled the word of life. He's recalling the fact that this was not some phantom. It was a flesh and blood resurrection. And so John can say with authority, 
what Jesus was all about because John was there with him. And so instead of being doubtful, John is saying that those who believe the gospel can have confidence because the message is true. And just like in a courtroom, John says we can trust the gospel because of his eyewitness testimony. This is not a story that was made up years later. This is an eyewitness testimony about the gospel. But beyond simply having confidence in the gospel, we should rejoice in its truths too. And specifically, our second point is that we should rejoice in the truth that there is no gospel without Jesus Christ. There is no gospel without Jesus Christ. Read verse 2 with me. He concludes verse 1 by throwing out all these verbs, what we've heard, what we've seen, what we've looked at, what we've touched, about what? Concerning the word of life. And this life was manifested. And we have seen and we testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. We see twice in this quick verse, this verb manifested is used. Now, maybe if you're an English teacher, you have used the word manifested in in a sentence this week. I have not. I have not used the word manifested in a very long time. But any of you that work with uh, shipping, if you've ever ordered something from eBay or Amazon, know that when you receive a package, you receive a shipping manifest with that. Okay? And what that manifest does is it allows you to see at a quick glance on a sheet of paper everything that was shipped to you. So let's say you received 10 packages with 1,000 bolts in it, and you got 10 boxes with 1,000 bolts apiece. You can do one of two things. You can get your box cutter and you can open up every single one of those boxes and you can count one, two, three, four, five, six, all the way up to 10,000. Or you can check the manifest and see what they actually ship to you. And if they said one box, 1,000 bolts, another box, 1,000 bolts, all the way down the line, man, a manifest, a shipping manifest is making clear or revealing to you the contents which you have received. That is exactly what Jesus' role was. Jesus came to manifest the Father to us. No one has seen God, but those who see Jesus know who God is and what God is like because Jesus has made God clear to us. God, the Father, has no body. But God, the Son, took on flesh so that we could understand God's character. Without a flesh and blood example, it would be hard for us to understand who God is. And so John is making a very specific point here. He's saying essentially, it doesn't matter what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have looked at, what we have touched, unless we're talking about something important here. He says, I'm talking about Christ. And all of these actions that I, have, I have, am talking about here in verse 1 are worthless if we're not talking about Christ. And so this verb manifest is important in verse 2. Everything in verse 1 is pointing to it. Everything in verse 3, 4 is pointing back to it. And it's pointing out to us that God's action always precedes man's action. What good does it do for John to tell us what he's heard, what he's seen, what he's touched, what he's looked at, unless he's telling us something that's, that's novel? He's not just saying, hey, let me tell you about my day. I got up this morning, I ate breakfast, I uh, went to work, I came home. No, he's saying... I'm reporting facts about something that is extremely important here. And so the point that he's making is that God has done something completely unique, clearly revealing himself to us in his son. This reminds us of the fact that is uh, sad, uh, but, but often the case in our churches. Uh, we forget this, that the very most important thing about Christianity is Christ. 
Now, I don't, I don't know if you've been a part of a church that has been so busy with activity that it's really hard to see where Jesus is sometimes. Listen, in your own family life, if you're a believer called by Christ's name who wants to follow him, do you get so busy that sometimes it's not real clear where Jesus fits into your life? You've got to run the kids to school, run them to soccer practice, do grocery shopping, wash the clothes, cook dinner, clean up the house, cut the grass, fix the sprinklers. Where's Jesus in all of that? Just like in individual lives, it's very possible for churches to get so inordinately busy that Jesus just seems to disappear from the activity. We're too busy to even notice that he's not around anymore. And as a church, we have always got to focus on the very fact that the most important thing about anything that we do is Jesus Christ himself. It doesn't matter how good the food is at a fellowship meeting. If Jesus is not present, it's not a fellowship. It's a, it's a social gathering. It doesn't matter whether we like the songs or don't like the songs that we sing. If Jesus isn't present, it isn't worship. It doesn't matter if there's cute stories that are shared from the pulpit. If Jesus Christ isn't present in the preaching, it's not preaching. And it is a sad but true truth that in our churches today, we've forgotten that the most important thing about Christianity is Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus, uh, John is saying here very clearly, I'm not just sharing stories. I'm reporting facts about what God has done that makes everything that we do completely possible. We can have confidence because I was there as an eyewitness and I can attest and testify to the truth of the gospel. But you know what? I am testifying to the manifestation, the clear revealing of who God is. And so we have to work hard to make Jesus the explicit center of all we do. You know, people who are not here at church this morning have no idea why we get together for worship. I've had the opportunity to meet some of my neighbors and they they don't know why we get, come here. Because your mommy and daddy brought you. Some of you have just never gotten over that. You come because it's a habit. No, we gather, not because it's convenient, not even because it's a tradition. We gather because Jesus got out of the grave. We, we gather because Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. We gather, we get here uh, regularly, and we enjoy being together because of what Jesus Christ has done. If the resurrection is not true then we should cancel our services. We have no reason to get together as a church. But because he's alive, we can gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ and celebrate the fact that Jesus got out of the grave. So uh, we will talk a little bit more in the weeks to come, next week I think, about how Christ changes fellowship. Because there's a baseline standard expectation in most of our churches for what fellowship looks like. And sadly, it doesn't have a whole lot to do with what Jesus has done. It is possible sometimes for Christians to get together for fellowship and talk about the news, to talk about weather, and to talk about sports, and to never mention Jesus' name in the conversation at all. When we get together for fellowship, it should look different than what neighbors who don't believe in Christ get together and talk about. Can we agree on that? Absolutely. Our conversation needs to be redeemed if we have been changed by the blood of the Lamb, to talk about that. One of the things I think that's odd, and I'm off target here a little bit, off the topic, I'm chasing a rabbit. One of the reasons I'm convinced that Christians don't talk with non-Christians about the gospel is because Christians don't talk to other Christians about the gospel. 
When is the last time that you shared as a family, hey, you want to know what God did for me today? You want to know a way that God just showed up and blessed me today? Are you, hey, here's a hard thing that I'm going through that I really need an answer from God on. It is very rare that we have that kind of transparency in our Christian conversations, isn't it? We show up and we got to look like everything's good and we talk about news, weather, and the sports and we never mention Jesus. Well, here's the challenge. Families, listen, some of you may have kids at home. Some of you may be empty nesters. But make it a habit when you get together for dinner to say one way that God showed up in your day. You know, fellowship as a family, talk about God around the dinner table, not just when you pray to bless your meal. Invite them into your family, invite them into your conversation, and find one thing to talk about how Jesus showed up. Because if we start talking about the gospel among ourselves, guess what? It's not so awkward when we talk about the gospel with a non-Christian. When the gospel's on our lips, and we're used to it, and we're comfortable... Part of the problem is when we start to talk to a non-Christian about the gospel, well, we start fidgeting because we're in strange territory. We don't ever talk about the gospel, not even to, not to our spouse, not to our kids. Uh, maybe a little bit in our Sunday school class, but that's it. Guys, the gospel's not something for us to hide. Now, Jesus, don't put it under a bushel. Let your light shine before men. We've got to get comfortable talking about the gospel with other believers before we ever have a chance to talk about the gospel with the non-believers. What I love about Jesus is that where he shows, you can always tell where Jesus shows up because he brings changes. If you look at these couple of verses that we're looking at, at the end of verse 1, Jesus is referred to as the word of life. In verse 2, he is referred to as the life that was manifested. And in verse 3, he continues on and says, oh, I'm sorry, in verse 2, he continues on and says, uh, and he calls Jesus the eternal life. So the word of life, the life that was manifested, the eternal life. Jesus and people who follow him, we we don't subscribe to a thought system. We don't subscribe to an ideology. We subscribe to a person. At the center of the Christian faith is a man who was God, who lived and died for our sins. Not some thought form, not some philosophy, not some way of thinking. And that's important because thought forms, ideologies don't change lives. People do. And everywhere Jesus shows up, he brings life with him. Lazarus learned that lesson pretty well. Before Jesus, dead. Jesus shows up at the funeral, alive. Lazarus is back out. And so everywhere Jesus shows up, he changes things because he brings life with him. He is overflowing with power, with energy, with vitality, with life. And and when, when Jesus is in the area, there's no mistake. You don't have to question Was that Jesus? Because he doesn't tiptoe. He creates. He speaks dead men back into life. And so one of the things that's awesome is we can always see where Jesus shows up because he brings life. And that brings us to our third and final point, that we can rejoice in the truth that the gospel results in changed lives. We can look at this sermon this morning and go, hey, that's great that we can be confident in the truth of the gospel. I need to hear that. I don't need to be badgered by people detracting from Christianity. It's great for us to be reminded that Jesus is the center of the gospel, that there's no gospel without Jesus. Where's the practicality for this? How does this apply to my life? If, the, if I can have confidence in the gospel, if I need to realize that Jesus is the center of the gospel, what difference does that make? How does that, how, if Jesus brings life, what does that look like? Well, our third point really brings that home. And I think one of the things that's important for us to uh, be on the same page about, is it is impossible for us right here 
in this room, up in the balcony, behind me in the choir. We cannot replicate John's experience. You are not physically going to hear Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. You're not going to hear that, not, with your, not audibly with your own ears. You're not going to see what John saw. You're not going to, to touch Jesus and put your finger in his side like the disciples did. But we all can experience Christ manifesting himself, revealing himself to us, and we do get to experience the same Christ that the disciples experienced, just not with our sensory perception. It's by faith. And so... It's interesting how Jesus manifests himself to people because if you've ever had the opportunity to speak with someone about the gospel, same gospel message, same presentation, person A doesn't listen, person B repents and is saved. Why does that happen? Same person sharing the gospel, same gospel message, same methodology. This person doesn't believe and this person does. Or take listening to preaching. You have all experienced an occasion where you have walked out of a worship service and go, that was a sermon. But yet the person sitting next to you goes, didn't mean much to me. Why is that? Because Christ, Christ manifests himself to different people in different ways. There will be some people here that will hear a message and go, man, that's the message I needed to hear. But then there will be other people who go, you know, didn't really ring my bell. Wasn't especially what I needed to hear. Didn't really push my buttons. Didn't really hit a need in my life. Christ is in the business of still manifesting himself to people, not by flesh and blood like he did with John, but by faith to people who believe in the gospel message. When Jesus makes himself manifest to a person, he changes their life. And one of the things I think that is important for us to reclaim is that when we talk about the gospel, the gospel is a pathway not just a destination. The gospel is a pathway, not just a destination. And I, I grew up in a, in a uh, Christian culture that made it very easy as a child or a teenager to believe that the only thing Christianity was good for was when you die. Because you don't want to go to hell. Now, for the next 70 or 80 years, it doesn't mean a whole lot of good. It just Christianity is only good for when you die. It's your get-out-of-hell-free card. And the truth is, that's not the full gospel, is it? The full gospel is that Jesus doesn't just want to save you when you die. He wants to save you right now. He wants to give you a different quality of life. And there's there's a vast difference between a person who believes in the gospel as a destination somewhere in the future and someone who understands that this morning when I wake up, the gospel determines how I walk. The gospel determines the pathway that I'm on. The gospel determines whether I'm going to have a good attitude or a bad attitude today. And if I'm going to be a disciple and pick up my cross and carry it, there are certain ways that I have to live to walk the pilgrim pathway. The problem is we have had a lowest common denominator approach to the Christian message where we've boiled it down to the simplest points and just said, all right, if you don't want to go to hell, raise your hand. Now you're a Christian. We've never talked about obedience. We've never talked about lordship. We've never talked about following his commandments. And John says here, when we experience fellowship with God, the destination is the icing on the cake. That's the dessert. We get the main meal of enjoying Christ every day of our life. And he talks about certain ways that Jesus transforms our life as we conclude in verse 
3 and 4. Uh, look, with it, look at it with me. John says, What we've seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Three components of a changed life that we see here uh, quickly in, in John's conclusion to this first section. Number one, we see that John's purpose here in writing this whole book is proclamation. John says, because of what, what I've heard, because of what I've seen, because of what I've looked at, because of what I've touched, I cannot help but speak forth truth. Now, you may not think of yourselves as a proclaimer because you will never stand behind a pulpit. But you proclaim to your spouse. You proclaim to your coworkers. You proclaim to um, your children. You proclaim all the time. The issue is whether you're a good proclaimer or a bad proclaimer. You have the opportunity to proclaim. And John is saying, because of my experience, I cannot help but be a proclaimer. But notice what the two results of his proclamation are. John says that as he proclaims, so we, he proclaims so that you, his recipients, may have fellowship with us and fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. More, moreover, in verse 4, he says, these things we write, he, he is writing his proclamation so that our joy may be made complete. Well, why is John's joy made complete? Because John's experience of fellowship with God is incomplete until everyone he can talk to is in fellowship with God too. What an awesome way. That's not selfish. He's, you know, John's writing this, this letter and he's saying, you know, I got to write so that I get more joy and that my joy is made complete. This is not a selfish thing. This is not self-seeking. He's saying that his joy comes from giving joy to other people. What an awesome way to look at it. Instead of looking at joy as, you know, I, I, I've had a bad day, I've had a good day. No, you have joy, not just so you can hoard it all for yourselves and store it up. You have joy so that you can pour it out on everybody that you meet. And that's what John is saying here. And I, I think it's radical that John is saying that the route for God's people who are discouraged to get fellowship and to get joy is how? Through proclamation through the preaching of the word. Wow, what a large and intimidating task for a preacher preaching his first sermon. To say that one of my greatest ambitions is that through the preaching of the word, our fellowship might increase. Our joy might be made full. You would think that, you know, if you want joy, preach really short and tell funny stories and get them out as quick as you can. You would think if you want fellowship, again, preach a short message and cook really good food. But for believers in Christ, the truest food we can have is certainly the Word of God. And John's saying here that fellowship isn't what happens after the service. That's just the afterglow of what happens when we come and we bow our knees before Christ and we commit anew and afresh to follow Him as the Lord of our lives. Again, The destination is important, but you don't get to the destination unless you follow the pathway. And Jesus is laying out here for us a buffet of wonderful things that come through obedience to his word. One of the things that's good for us to remember is if you're a visual learner, you can draw a little triangle there in your bulletin off in the margin here. At the top of your triangle, you can put God. The bottom left, you can put you, the word you, Y-O-U. 
And at the bottom right, you put me. When we talk about fellowship, it's really interesting because I find people all the time that say, you know what, things with God, they're good. They don't go to church. They don't care to go to church. What that triangle shows is that what we believe about Jesus has a definite impact on what we experience in community. Because Jesus didn't just come to save you. Jesus came to make you a part of a people. Jesus came to save you and make you a part of his church. Jesus didn't come to have independent Lone Ranger Christians running around all by themselves apart from the encouragement and fellowship of a congregation. He, he, he died to purchase a people with his blood. And what we believe about Jesus personally has an impact on how we relate to one another. To use a fancy term, our Christology always has an impact on our community. If we are really living for Jesus, friends, it should show up on how we relate to one. How we relate to Jesus vertically has an impact on how we relate to one another, one another horizontally. And I don't know about you, I desperately want to be a part of a church that experiences what the Bible says when it talks about the fellowship of the saints. I want to be a part of a church that isn't just a happy church, not, not the fad in town, you know, not the it thing this month and then flash in the pan, it's gone, but a, a church that experiences a deep and abiding joy contrary to our experiences. Have you ever met a person that, that perhaps the week that you speak to them lost their job, lost a loved one, and when you go to console them, and when you speak to them, there is this deep well of joy completely contrary to their circumstances. That's a wise person. And John would tell you, that that sense of fellowship with God in the midst of life's most troubling uncertainties and that sense of deep and abiding joy that transcends any adversity that you can, affect, you can face is what should be the standard for people who are called by his name. So a couple questions for you in conclusion. John's telling us some, some really important things here this morning. He's marshaled all these witnesses and he said, by my, <clears throat> I put my hand on the Bible in the court of law and I testify to the things that I have seen and I've heard. He's telling us that we can have confidence in the gospel because the message is true. And he has the eyewitness testimony to back it up. If the message is true, do you believe it? The fact that Jesus was God, that he died, was resurrected, that's a hard-sounding truth to a lot of people's ears. But if the message is true, do you believe it? If the fellowship is genuine, when you have conversations with other brothers and sisters in Christ, is it just news, weather, and sports? Or are you actively sharing the things that God is teaching and showing and working in your life and letting it bubble out into your conversation with your brothers and sisters in Christ. There is nothing more encouraging than hearing how God is alive and working in another believer's life. If you've had good quiet times this week, if you've had good time in, your word, in the Word this week, share it with the people in your Sunday school class. Because I guarantee you there's somebody there who didn't have a good week in the Word. And sometimes your testimony can be the thing that kind of gets them kick-started. So if the fellowship is genuine... 
Are you contributing? Are you making the pot of fellowship at Northside Baptist Church better? Or are you content to merely take your ladle and just sample it? God wants you to be part of the ingredients, not just the taste tester. And friends, if joy is available, do you have it? There is no room for curmudgeon Christians. If Jesus has forgiven us of all our sins, I'll deal with the aches and pains of life because I can have a joy that goes beyond anything that I can experience in this life. I would rather have joy in a broken down body than a body that's in perfect health with no joy. So this morning, as we enter into our time of response, John, in these first four verses, is laying out some wonderful truths for us that we can trust the gospel and that there is a tremendous change that comes when we focus on Christ. The question for us this morning is, are we doing it? There is a gravity towards life that always pulls us off of the trajectory that we aspire to. So as we have the opportunity to respond this morning, this is your opportunity to say, you know what? I am not flying as straight as I would like to. My aspiration, uh, my expectation is, is greater than what I'm actually doing. The great word is that Jesus himself says, he who confesses his sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so this morning, if you need some help believing the gospel... If you need some help experiencing true biblical fellowship, if your joy tank is running on empty this morning, this is the place where you can get those things fixed. And so I'm going to invite you to stand as we pray and as we move into our time of invitation to come forward and to do your business with God this morning. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can have confidence in and rejoice in the facts of the gospel. I pray that you forgive us for where we have doubted, for where we have not participated, for where we have not enjoyed the joy that you give to us. And I pray right now by your Holy Spirit that you will give us the grace to repent, that you will help us to say, Lord, it is a new day. And by your spirit, for the sake of the glory of your son, I will live for you. So Lord, we thank you that you call us to be together as your people. There may be people here who need to join this fellowship, who for whatever reason have not joined this church and have not fully embraced your family. Lord, if there are people here who need to join this church, I pray that you bring them forward and by their testimony, encourage this body. There may be people here who are struggling with the gospel. They uh, were raised in an environment where they heard it, but they have questions. Lord, the church should be a safe place for people to ask those kinds of questions. There are people who have uh, deep questions about the gospel. I pray that you'll send them here. We have people who are trained who will encourage and help them to answer those questions. Lord, we pray that your spirit will move as we have this opportunity to sing and respond. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.